Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, we sit down with J. Michael Terry, Associate Professor in the Department of Linguistics and current IAH Faculty Fellow. Professor Terry discusses his research on language semantics and how standardized test scores are connected to dialects of English spoken at home. Well, Mike, we're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining the podcast. Well, thank you. Um, I want to thank you for having me here today, but also thank you to the Institute. You know, the, the IAH is one of those institutions on the campus that makes UNC such a really special place. And so it's an honor to, to be a fellow, and, and um, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Great. Thanks. Um, just to get started, I just want to kind of talk about your background. So you're a linguistics professor in the department. I am. Um, so what kind of drew you to that field? Well, my um, my path to linguistics is rather indirect. Okay. Um, I was finishing a master's in manufacturing engineering before I ever took my first linguistics course. Oh. Um, so, so it's a little different maybe from, from most. As I said, I was finishing a master's in manufacturing engineering, and I was working um, in a laboratory where we worked with sheet metal, actually. At the time, Digital Equipment Corporation made all of its own computer chassis. Mm. So they owned the largest sheet metal manufacturing plant in the country. Mm. And we were interested in having computers that the designers of these chassis would work on know something about manufacturing. And so our computer system would do things like you would draw a square in a circle and our computer system would say, oh, you want a hole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you want a hole, that hole's really too close to that edge to be manufactured cheaply. Why don't you let me as the computer put in a stress relief tab or move that hole? So what we were trying to do was to think about knowledge representation. Okay. Right? Um, and along the way, I, had, I came across a footnote in a paper on um, automating the design process to a paper by Noam Chomsky. And I started reading um, and following the, little, the threads from reference to reference. And I had come from, um, I didn't come from an engineering background. My, my parents both were literature people who taught in an Afro-American studies department. Oh, okay. And so language was always a big part of the home, and I loved language. And when I found that there were people who did science with language, um, that was just eye-opening for me. It was, and um, I was really just enthralled with, with that whole idea. At the time, kind of dating myself here, I um, was reading one of those Usenet news groups on science.language. And I, I wrote uh, out to cyberspace wherever this, I'm sure, really um, naive question about semantics. And I got a really terse reply back when someone said, well, idiot, I can see from <laughs> your post that you're writing from UMass, and they have one of the strongest linguistics departments in the country there. Why are you asking random people on the net <laughs> questions of when you can walk across campus and have those questions answered by, by real experts. Huh. So I took that walk, and that walk landed me here, ultimately. Um, I ended up, in the end, um, 
finishing my master's and staying there at, at UMass to do a PhD in linguistics and um, ultimately coming to Carolina here to teach. Yeah, really interesting. So fast forward to now, so now at Carolina, okay. can you talk about your current research interest and, and what that kind of the areas of focus that you're pursuing right now? Certainly. Um, I have two main areas of research that I'm, I'm interested in, um, and they intersect. Um, so I trained as what's called a formal semanticist, and um, I think about meaning. Okay. And as we were just talking uh, about, I, I think about how meanings are represented. So um, you and I are having a conversation now, and it's one in which I might say sentences that you've never heard before, yep. but you understand them. Right? And um, we take that for granted right, in our everyday lives. And when you're a linguist, you think, how is that possible? And if, I, if you sat and thought about that for a while, you'd, you'd probably end up telling me something like, well, I know the meanings of the words and the pieces of words that you've used, and I have some kind of system, I have some sort of rules for how to put them together. And I take those little meanings and I make bigger meanings. And that's essentially what we believe happens. But it invites a whole set of other questions, like what are those individual little meanings? How are they structured? And what are the rules that you use to put them together? And that's essentially what I study as a formal semanticist. I try to think about... Um, meanings as certain kinds of mathematical objects okay, and that combine with other objects in order to create those big meanings. And I try to work that out in a very formal system and then argue that there's some psychological reality to that, mm -hmm. that something like that really must be what you're doing inside of your head. So that's kind of one area of of research that I'm involved in. And in particular, what I'm, I'm interested in there is um, I'm interested in how we represent and how we encode in different languages and different dialects notions about time, hmm. past and present, you know, ongoing or completed. And I do that primarily by looking at dialects of American English and looking at, at what we might think of as, as dialects be for the, really for the same reason that, um, that a biologist might want to work with cloned sheep, right? You want to see what small-scale differences, things that are really, really close together, what little tiny changes, what differences those make, and trace those differences throughout. So I work largely in um, a dialect um, commonly referred to as African-American English. Um, and I think about that, semantics in that, in, in that area. Um, the other part of my um, research has more to do with processing. And I'm interested in how words and pieces of words and sentences get processed by speakers of dialects. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, uh, yeah, when I was researching kind of your current work, and um, it came up with African American English. And mm -hmm. how would you define that? Like, what? Yeah, what are those differences? I guess then, would it be standard American English? It turns out that defining languages and dialects is really hard. Okay. Right. To start. Um, to start. <laughs> so that's so that's okay, right? Yeah. That we we accept that. And it's really hard, I think, for the same reason that it's really hard, say, to define what a family is. Mm. Right. When we think about how we might define family, we tend to have 
two really different kinds of criteria that we use, right? And one's biological, right? Um, and the other is really sociological, right? And emotional, right? So, and those two things don't always correlate very well, right? You know, you can hate your cousin and love your neighbor, right? Yeah. Um, those sorts of, of, of differences. But when we think about family, we tend to put together definitions that combine these two things, right? And the same thing happens when we talk about language, right? Um, on the one hand, language we can think of in those very formal object kinds of terms that I had talked about before in terms of its syntax or semantics, right? But on the other hand, um, language is a, a cultural tool, right? It, it's, it's, it's something that we use in, in, in social settings. And the definitions of those boundaries Right, of where one language or dialect begins and one ends gets confused by that, th those issues. Um, so when we talk about languages and dialects as linguists, we tend to be um, either very fussy on the one hand, mm -hmm. right, or very loose on the other, right? Um, and Which side do you kind of lean more towards? Well, it, 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 I think it, it has to do with what you're, what you're trying to say at the, at the time, yeah. right? So on the one hand, I can be kind of loose and say, well, I'm talking about this dialect over here. When I start to talk about its grammatical or its social properties, I really want to be very clear about what I'm defining, right? And we can then use definitions that have both this kind of structural kinds of definition. So um, much of my more recent work, I'm very concerned with small-scale differences in structure. Right? But then we also might want to talk for other purposes about definitions in terms of social use and, the, and the, what we might think of as a speech community. Right? So right. I'm, I'm not quite sure if that answers yeah, your question. Yeah, so um, I guess what I'm trying to think about, too, and something is coming from a field, so I work in you know communications, and I yeah. I feel like I don't know anything about ling you know, linguistics. I was telling Philip to start. So kind of defining it for me, like, is, so is there like a standard American English that we, as like a dialect, that we kind of model or things are compared to? And then there's these like subcategories like African American English or other, the, you know, other areas right. that are tweaks off of one, I guess, is what I'm trying to understand. So I guess the, the way we might think of it is, is um, we're talking about grammars. We're talking about rule systems, right? And I think um, you know one popular notion that linguists find themselves needing to push back against is that we have sort of one idealized way of of speaking, and then everything else is some sort of defect. Right? Mm -hmm. um, what what we think about is um, different kinds of systems. So in the way that say, um, we drive on the right-hand side of the road here in the U.S., right? And when you go to England, you drive on the other side of the road, right? Um, and one's not defective. <laughs> one's not right and one's not wrong. We have different systems that are complete unto themselves, right? And we find appropriate for use in whichever locale we're in. And, and languages and dialects are very much the same way. So often what we think of as being uh, a defect or something that's somehow broken is really just part of another system. 
Um, and that's the way we think about language as, as linguists, as these systems. Right. And so we'll have different systems that we might think of as being related enough to call varieties of American English. Oh, I understand. Okay. Thank you for breaking that down for me. That makes a lot of sense now. And one thing I was looking at was your, is it RTP 180 event? Oh, yeah. 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 So I was watching kind of the talks that you did um, Mm -hmm. during those sessions. And one of them that I found really interesting was about standardized testing. And so how the questions are kind of written out and Mm -hmm. what, if that's not what a a student maybe hears in the home, what kind of challenges they might face doing, you know, during this standardized test. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit more? Sure. So as someone who thinks about language, um, one of the things that I'm very interested in is how young children um, cope with language that's unfamiliar to them. And I'm particularly interested in how they do that in testing situations. So we had just been talking about um, language varieties as systems, right? Okay. Well, um, we might ask the question then if I have one kind of system that I'm operating in at home and then I come to school and there's another system that I have to become accustomed to are there particular kinds of rules that are going to cause conflict enough to depress my test scores, right? to, to put me in a situation where I'm not, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not able to handle the material quite as well as, if, um, as one might expect? And so in work that I've done with my um, UNC colleague, um, now retired Randy Hendrick, and most recently with Mako Hirotani, who is the director of the Language and Brain Lab at Carleton University in Ottawa, we've been asking that kind of question. You know, are there structural kinds of differences that bother kids? And in some of the early work that Randy and I did, we looked at math word problems where we saw that um, for a significant number of, of kids who in their home dialect do not have what we might call third-person singular s. So John eats ice cream, right? Okay. As opposed, at home, they're saying John eat ice cream, right? And again, this isn't a defect of any sort. This is actually a system that makes a lot more sense. We, in, in standard in academic English, we've kept that third-person singular s because it was dying out of the language right about the time the printing press came in. And if it weren't for that, there's probably no doubt that we would all be going around saying John eat instead of John eats. So these children operate in a system that does that. And what we found looking at test results was that the more instances there were of that S in a math word problem, the worse this group of kids did. And we have reasons why we thought this might be, in particular, this kind of difference might might cause an effect. Um, So we weren't particularly surprised at that. What we were surprised at was what our statistical data, our mathematical modeling was suggesting that for a good maybe 15% of the kids that we looked at, that this was enough to cause a 
10% decrease in their ability to answer the questions correctly. So we're talking maybe a letter grade. Right. Um, and what, recent, what I've done recently with, with MACO is we, in working in Warren County. Um, Where's Warren County? Warren County is north of here. Okay. Um, we were in um, a school, Marion Boyd Elementary School in Warrenton, North Carolina. Okay. Wonderful students, wonderful teachers, wonderful principal, just a great place. Um, we were um, working with second graders there, and what we did was we gave them a linguistically controlled math test so that we knew nothing was different in the questions that these kids were hearing other than do you have this S, do you not have this S? And the children who answered these questions heard both with an S and without an S. So it's the same kid answering the same questions only with an S or without an S. And what we found was on average, the children answered 10% more questions correctly when they were hearing it in their own dialect and not in the school dialect. What we did in going further was we looked at those same children and we had them watch a special cartoon we developed where a character would come out and say something and we would either with an S or without an S. And while they were watching that cartoon, we were measuring their brain waves. Mm. And what we saw was characteristic brainwave patterns of confusion, right? uh, or essentially of what we interpret as confusion yeah. at that third person singular S at the millisecond juncture where they would hear that, that oh my S. Gosh. And so all of those, th those three things are sort of come together to suggest to us that this is a real issue. Um, there's, a, a, there's something really worth not just studying, but coming to understand so that we can help teachers to help kids to better show what they actually know. I mean, right. that, that comes down to day-to-day -day instruction as well. It? it does. Yeah, I was not going to say not just standardized tests. You know, there's it so does. much that hinge but on But there's so much that hinge on. And there's so much that can be misinterpreted. Is that a child who doesn't pay attention? Or is that a child who's paying very strict attention but is being confused by a very small linguistic feature? Mm. You know, oftentimes I, when I talk about this, people think, well, these dialectal differences are so small, how can they have any effect? And um, I like to use the following analogy. Um, imagine that I sent you to the kitchen and asked you to bring me back a fork. So odds are you're not going to come back with a spoon or a knife. But if I sent you to the kitchen and said, can you bring me back a salad fork? Now that problem gets to be a little more challenging. You might get there and spend some time going, which is the salad fork, which is the dinner fork? And if you don't make that kind of distinction at home, it's even harder. I see. Right. And so, some, so uh, a way I like to talk about it is that it's not always the size of the linguistic difference that matters. It's often the shape. And so part of this work that I've been doing, um, as I said, with um, Randy Hendrick and with Mako Hiratani has been trying to identify what are the shapes that matter? Because most don't. Mm -hmm. right? Most of the time there's not a big problem. But the problems that we've identified seem to be real problems. I've got one more question that is sure. unrelated to your unrelated. research. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, what's a book that changed your life? Hmm. A book that changed my life. There are probably quite a few, but 
what what comes to mind right now um, what comes to mind right now is um, Anne Moody's book Coming of Age in Mississippi which I read when I was um, leaving middle school going straight into high school right um, and I think oftentimes these um, life-changing events come at um, readings come at life-changing times definitely and I remember reading that book um, and I remember being one um, it, it's her story of her life um, growing up in Mississippi um, having been the the daughter of sharecroppers like my mother was um, having gone on to be involved in the civil rights movement like both of my parents. I remember being captured not only by those kinds of commonalities, but being captured by um, the, the language and how her descriptions of these life-changing events for her were, were both so very clear and so very poetic at the very same time. Um, and I remember being, um, just at that time, at that age, being struck by that in a way that um, whether I would, would go on to study engineering or math or science, I knew that um, language and, um, and society were, were always things that would, would be things that I would need, I would pay attention to. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining the podcast. We're excited to see you around Hyde Hall this fall as a faculty fellow. So I'm looking I'm, forward so to I'm it. sure we'll see you in the <laughs> building many times. But thank you again so much. Thank you. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all the episodes of our podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.